Hi, everyone. I'm Janet B. Recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. So this past Thursday, Melissa did part one of We Agnostics. And this coming Thursday, she's going to do part two of We Agnostics. So I figured something in between, something that's kind of second steppy, third steppy. And now that the holiday season is upon us, this seems like the perfect time to redo something I've done before called um, the formula for serenity, trust and surrender. So if you've heard it before, feel free to log off. I won't be offended. Um, but this is really, you know, what we've learned is serenity doesn't have to do with circumstances. It has to do with our relationship with God. So hopefully um, this will be helpful to y'all. Two scenarios in my household. Scenario one, one of my teenagers asked me for something. I know the right thing is to say no, but I want to avoid an argument. So I just say yes. Um, great. Argument avoided. Um, but three days later, when this child is just five minutes late coming home, I blow up at my child for being selfish and inconsiderate. And then I'm mad at myself for overreacting. Okay, scenario two. Same teenager asked me for something. I know the right thing is to say no. I want to avoid an argument, but I say no anyway, because I'm no longer living life doing what I want to do. And when that child complains and tells me I'm the world's worst mom, I hold my ground calmly. And then if I need to, I do a fear inventory and call a fellow. And three days later, when said child is five minutes late coming home, I remind myself they're usually on time, give grace and nicely ask how their evening went and I have serenity. Okay, same scenarios, but different reactions. Why? Why do I sometimes create calamity, but at other times I have serenity even when other people are creating chaos? And I think the answer is found in what I think is like a brilliant, brilliant formula in the big book on page 68. It's like two simple lines, but I think it tells us how we can have serenity all the time. We are in the world to play the role that he, God, assigns just to the extent, so we can see an equal sign there, that we A, do as we think he would have us, and B, humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So if I don't have serenity, even in the midst of calamity, I'm either not doing what I think God would have me, right? Not surrender to his will or not humbly relying on him, not trusting him with the outcome. So this is what I want to talk about tonight. I'm this formula for serenity, trust and surrender. I think trust has to come first, right? By and large, I can't surrender without trust. Um, think about it. That's how it goes in all areas of our life. We surrender to sitting on a chair because we trust the chair will hold us, right? We you know, surrender to turning on the light switch because we trust electricity will be there. Um, a couple of years ago, I had severe pain in my right side. I tried to take care of it myself with pain relievers, but it didn't go away. One might say I was powerless over the pain. Um, I was on a plane ride coming back from Montana, 
and I was scared they I was really scared they might have to make an emergency landing for me. One might say my life was unmanageable. Um, I clearly had a problem that I needed outside help with. So I went to my doctor as soon as I got home. She said, Dr. X is chief of surgery at the local hospital. Go to him. I trusted her. So I went to Dr. X who took out my appendix and the problem was solved. Based on my trust of my own doctor and then my trust with Dr. X, I came to believe that Dr. X could restore me to health and I made a decision to allow him to cut and remove a body part of mine when I was anesthetized. For those couple of hours, I literally turned my life over to Dr. X. Well, now that we all know the genesis of my appendectomy, um, let's get back to the big book and trusting God. Before we continue, let's define the word trust. To trust means to believe in the reliability, truth, ability or strength of someone or something for our purpose, God. So how do we come to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of God if we don't? Well, the first way is research. Even though we may not think of it that way, we don't call it research. Our research takes the form of learning about what has happened to other people who've trusted God. I mean, that's the main reason we tell our stories. Page 29 says that in the personal stories, each individual describes from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. So side note, guys, like people, when you're going to tell your story, that should be the crux of it, according to the big book. How did you get your relationship with God? Because if you've recovered, you had to get a relationship with God, but the way you found God might be way different than how I did. And so you might be able to help someone through your story who I couldn't through mine. Um, that's what, so whenever someone's new and, they, and they're about to tell their story for the first time, I just say, make God the hero of your story. You know, not 20 minutes of how you binge and then five minutes of how you got better. The other way around make God the hero of your story, and then your qualification will always be awesome. Okay. Um, page 50 of our big book tells us the founders of AA all agreed on one thing. I think that's so funny. Imagine getting even two addicts to agree on anything. And they're saying a hundred of them agreed to this. And this is what it is. On one proposition, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. This power with a capital P, meaning God, has in each case accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. As a celebrated American statement put it, let's look at the record. Accomplish the miraculous, right? God rewiring our hearts, changing us so that we're not the selfish, self-centered people we were, that our priorities become more like God's priorities, like the soil of our soul gets changed, and then the illness of compulsive eating can't thrive there, right? What did they say about, Bill say about Ebby? His roots grasped a new soil. This is about God changing the soil of our soul. Um. So my evidence, if I'm a newcomer, is really all of you. If all of you tell me 
that once you believed in the reliability, trust, ability, and strength of God, your obsession with food or alcohol began to be lifted, that would certainly be fertilizer for my own trust. And again, that's why there's stories in the back of the big book and why we share our stories to prove to newcomers that God is trustworthy. But because we're the kind of people we are, there's generally another hurdle we have to get through, right? If I tell you Dr. X is a great doctor and can take care of your appendix if you ever need it, you would have no trouble believing me. But if I tell you that God took care of my eating problem and can take care of yours, well, that's a little harder, right? Suddenly we have all sorts of arguments and here's why. Page 55 of the big book tells us that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. However, here's the big however, it may be obscured, blocked by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things. So now when I tell you about Dr. X's great surgical skills, you probably don't have any kind of block that will prevent you from calling him if you have appendicitis. But when it comes to God, we typically have three blocks mentioned in the big book, calamity, pomp, worship of other things. And these obscure my belief in God, much like a cataract can obscure my sight. Um, I guess we can call them, right, the three soul cataracts. First one, calamity. That's the one Bill Wilson had on page 11 of the big book. He talks about wars, chicanery. I can never remember the definition of that. Wars, chicanery, burning, and the devastation he saw in Europe after the First World War. In fact, he said, if there was a devil, he seemed to be the boss. I mean, that's pretty strong. So his belief in God was obscured by calamity. Well, how'd you get through it? Ebby, the man who 12-stepped him, didn't argue with him. He just said God had done for him what he couldn't do for himself. And thinking about that, I realized that when I say to God that he shouldn't allow human trafficking or cancer or my kids to not listen to me, what I'm really saying is that I'm smarter than God and I know how the world should be run. On my wedding day, I, of course, like every bride, wanted sunshine, but it was pretty much a monsoon. It was like it rained torrentially. Um, but if God answered every bride's prayer for no rain on her wedding day, there'd be no food supply because no crops can grow. So I need to realize that when I'm saying God shouldn't do ABC, what I'm really saying is that if I were God, I wouldn't do ABC. And I have learned um, through the School of Hard Knocks that I am quite underqualified for God's job. Um, the next thing that obscures our belief in God is pomp, defined as ostentatious boastfulness or vanity. It's really me thinking I'm too good to need God, that I can handle things on my own. Well, if that's the case, all I really need to do is ask myself, how well did I handle food on my own or my job or my marriage or parenting? Chances are, if I could handle all those things, I wouldn't have been spending my time pre-pandemic in like church basements at anonymous fellowship meetings. Um, my track record was abysmal and that kind of squashed my pomp. The final block is worship of other things. 
when I was in college, I had a boyfriend who I turned into an idol. Like I lived for my, for his approval. If he was mad, I was depressed. If he was happy with me, I was over the moon. Um, I was a theater major and I loved theater. And there was one time I was going to try out for a play that I really wanted to be in. And I had a shot at getting a good part, but he was free that night. So I just didn't even try out. I mean, I, I just, my own identity didn't exist um, because I made an idol out of him. Um, clearly not a healthy relationship. And thankfully we parted ways. Um, but if I care too much about another person, whether that person is a spouse, a child, a boss, I'm in trouble. Or if I care about other things too much, my job, my possessions, my status, or here's a big one for me that I have to fight, my right to leisure time, um, then I'm in trouble. I've made that person or thing into an idol. So those are some of the blocks mentioned on page 55, but remember what it also says, my favorite line in the book, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Beautiful thought. God planted in me, in all of us, the idea of himself. It's as if when he created us, he said, I want them to know me and to love me. So along with eyes and ears and kidneys and lungs, fundamental things for us, right? He said, I'm going to make the knowledge of me a fundamental thing also. Remember, our book says God doesn't make too hard terms with those who seek him. Well, how could he? The knowledge of him is planted inside of us. We just need to just kind of water that plant. Okay, so let's assume we've cleared away the blocks. And if anyone wants to go more in detail about the things that block us from God, um, we have recordings on We Agnostics. Um, I did a two-part talk. And in part one, I talk in depth about the different prejudices that can block us from God. But let's say we've gone through our prejudices, we've gone through our spiritual cataracts, and we trust God. It's a great start and a necessary start because we don't get any power until we trust. Admitting we're powerless doesn't give us power. Getting a sponsor doesn't give us power. Trust is the beginning of our infusion of power, like a pick line of grace going straight to our hearts. On page 46, it says that as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps, right? Notice that. Wait, I think I'm missing a page here. We begin getting power when we begin having faith. Like, how come? What's the correlation? Because faith is the currency in the spiritual world. In the physical world, if I want something, I go to the store and hand the cashier money. Money is a currency in the physical world that allows me to get food, clothing, gas. I say that, you know, hand the clerk a 20 and get, get some gas in my car. Then I went to LA and it's like, you have to hand them a 50 or a hundred out there. Um, but really imagine like a Martian looking down on us and seeing me handing a clerk a piece of plastic or a piece of green and white paper with a man's face on it and getting groceries or gas in my car. They would say that doesn't make sense because they don't know that money is a currency on earth. 
well, the currency in the spiritual world isn't money. We can't hand God a 50 or a credit card. The currency in the spiritual world is faith, generally activated by prayer. Um, faith or trust is currency in the spiritual world and actually gets things done. Um, without it, God's hands might be tied. So prayer is so important, but trust is only half our equation. The sentence we just read said that once we believe, we get power and direction, provided we take other simple steps. And the next step is surrender, which is an action step. If I'm a diabetic and I trust and believe that insulin has helped you and even come to believe that insulin will help me, but I don't inject the insulin into my arm, the fact that I believe that I trust it will work is absolutely useless. Um, in the AA 12 and 12 on page 72, it says that we could actually have earnest religious beliefs, which remain barren because we were still trying to play God ourselves. So I need to add surrender to my trust. Now there's a temptation for all of us to say, okay, God, I'm willing to believe, prove it. Prove it by removing my food obsession. But God isn't Santa. He's not a genie in the bottle. And if I'm asking God to prove himself to me, then I'm still playing God. Um, my favorite example of this is in the exchange between two men, both committed to an insane asylum. It's written by the minister's son. You know, he's talked about in chapter four. And it, the story is told from his point of view. His whole story is awesome. I highly recommend it. It's called Our Southern Friend. It's on page 215. This is from his point of view. I get out of bed and go into the man's room, the other patient in the insane asylum. He is reading. I must ask you a question, I say to the man. How does prayer fit into this thing? Well, he answers, you've probably tried praying like I have. You've been in a jam. You said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you said, there isn't any God or he hasn't done anything for me. Is that right? Yes, I reply. That isn't the way, he continued. The thing I do is to say, God, here I am. And here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything with it. You take me in all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does, the minister's son answers. This is what he says. I return to bed. It doesn't make sense. Suddenly, I feel a wave of utter hopelessness sweep over me. I'm in the bottom of hell, and there a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say. But slowly, a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. And as we know from reading his story, he never drank again. So what was the key here? He surrendered his whole life. He gave God all of it. God could take his alcohol, his marriage, his job, everything. But we have to admit, like, it's a little tricky. When I surrender... Do I just like sit around like a lump of clay expecting God to do everything like shampoo my, ha my hair? Well, of course not. Surrender is defined as abandoning oneself entirely. But I think for us addicts, I would add something to that definition to say 
Surrender is doing the right thing and leaving the results up to God. Well, on a practical level, what does that look like? So generally, we have goals. Um, the goals are often good ones, like raising respectful children, getting my husband to stop smoking. But they're my goals and they're outcome oriented. That's where we get into trouble when our goals are so outcome oriented. It's radically different when my goal is simply to do God's will. So for example, if my goal is to have respectful children and I try my hardest and do the right thing most of the time, but my kids still aren't respectful, I will get resentful and fearful and probably start doing more wrong things like screaming or manipulating to reach my goal. But if my goal is simply to do God's will, I may still do everything the same, will still try my best with my kids, but I'm less likely to get angry, fearful, and frustrated because I'm not focused so much on the results, having respectful children. I'm focused on my obedience to God. So in other words, the goal shifts from achieving something, even if that something was good, to simply doing God's will. We're out of the results business. That's what surrender is. I mean, I'll talk about some of the challenges that can happen with surrender. A big one I had is when I was single and I was in my late thirties, still single. And after a pretty wild past, I believed that God wanted me to chase until I got married. And I felt fear. Who would want to marry someone with the sex ideal that I had? I, and I also thought I just wouldn't be happy unless I got married. So I had like this demand to get married and this fear that by doing God's will, what the sex idea was for me at that time, I would never be able to get what I wanted. Um, I had a demand to get married, but the AA 12 and 12 says, page 76, no peace was to have, was to be had unless we could find a means of reducing those demands. The difference between a demand and a simple request is plain to anyone. So it was okay for me to want a husband, but not to demand it and not to feel like God owed it to me. Um, but God is good. And my husband and I recently celebrated 22 years of marriage. Um, but even if I were sitting here 62 and single, I like to believe that I would be just as surrendered and just as happy as I am now. Another area that's often difficult for us to surrender, especially at the beginning, is our food plan. Um, even once we get abstinent and start working the steps, there's sometimes we need to make new surrenders. So whether at the beginning or years in, we may have to do what Dr. Bob said. Um, on page 181, he says, I used to get terribly upset when I saw my friends drink and knew I could not, but I schooled myself to believe that though I once had the privilege, I had abused it so frightfully it had been withdrawn. Notice the absence of self-pity here. He just surrendered his right and used his intellect to help him. I have a sponsee who told me that she felt inspired to have a breakup conversation with unhealthy foods, much like she'd do with an unhealthy boyfriend. And she got relief from that. She actually had a breakup conversation. Um, for me, by far the biggest challenge to surrender has been with my children. And I actually want to pull up a prayer that has helped me um, tremendously with that. 
So if you just bear with me a second. Okay. Um, I have to surrender my kids' future physical, mental health, my dreams for their future, my hopes for their religious practices, all the things that the big book would lump together as my little plans and designs. Surrender means I try to raise them right and leave the results to God. By far, I would say the biggest obstacle in my recovery through the years has been um, with my kids and getting angry and fearful and frustrated until one day a few years ago, someone pointed out to me that the problem was that I was making an idol out of my relationship with my children, right? What blocks us from God, worship of other things. I didn't worship my kids. You know, I know some people have, um, the way their idolatries manifest is they, it's like their kids have to get into the right college and have to, I didn't care about that. I cared about my children loving me. And that drove me, that fear drove me. And once I saw that that was an idol, um, I had to surrender it. I had to just surrender. It's like, God, I'll do the right thing. And whether or not they love me has to become none of my business. The irony is once that happened, my relationship with my kids healed and now it's better than it's ever been. But um, there's a prayer that I said that really helped me. So I'm just going to say it in case it in case it helps someone. Lord, I entrust my children to you now. I release them to your protective care, knowing that they're much safer with you than in my clinging hands. Please remove all idolatry of my children and my relationship with my children from my heart so that I don't endanger them or myself. Please remove all fear that I won't matter to them. I release my children to you and I release my fear to you so that I'm free to cling to your hand. Thank you that as I entrust my children to you, you are then free to shower blessings on them. Thank you that your presence goes with them wherever they go. Thank you that you will guide my children and help them learn to trust you. Thank you that I matter to you. Thank you that your presence stays with me as I relax and trust you. Lord, I am excited to watch and see what you will do. Amen. Um, and I say that prayer because I think, especially for um, women, it that's one of our biggest problems. And I can report that I've really had success with it. Today, um, my son called me just as I was about to get to work and you know, had an issue. And I'm like, you know, sorry, Daniel, you know, I, I've got to get to work. I can't talk. And he's like, oh, so your work is more important than your son? And the old me would have like, oh, oh my gosh, it's Gil. Yes, you know, it doesn't matter if I lose my job. I have to respond to my son right, right away. And I just sat and I'm like, okay, I have a few choices. I could tell him that was inappropriate. I could um, be a few minutes late for work or I could do nothing. And I decided to do nothing. You know, I don't have to... Um, I don't have to go to every fight I'm invited to. I just went about my day. And when we talked this evening, I didn't bring it up. He didn't bring it up. It's a non-issue, but I could not have done that 
while I was making an idol out of my relationship with my children, because my fear of not being loved would have been too strong. So circling back to where we started, um, if I don't have serenity, I can't use the excuse that there's chaos or calamity all around me. The early AAs, if you read in the AA 12 and 12 step one, went to war and they stayed sober. I cannot think of anything more chaotic than being in war. Um, so if I'm not feeling serenity, I need to look at where in the situation I'm either not trusting God and or where I'm not surrendered. So I think this is a way we can help each other. If someone calls us agitated, um, first a good thing to do is to read the third step thing about the actor and have them read it in the first person. And when someone did that with me, it just brought my anxiety down. And I saw that was my problem. I was trying to run the show. And we can help each other look at, okay, is where are you not trusting God? And where have you not surrendered the results? And of course, we do this gently when we try to help each other. We don't badger each other with it. But instead of like, oh, you know, poor you, like your son mouthed off to you, you know, whatever. It's like, okay, where are you not doing God's will and where are you not surrendered? Have you not surrendered the relationship? And I find, I'm, I think that's a good way where we can help each other. Um, when I do trust and when I do surrender, I can expect not only serenity, but so much more. On page 100, my second favorite line in the book, it says, the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently be living in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. Isn't that gorgeous? Um, remember, my plans are limited by my imagination, but God's imagination is limitless. And the new and wonderful world we live in, no matter what our present circumstances, I think it's the fourth dimension that Bill references on page eight, where we can know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes, right? Just like this illness is progressive, recovery is progressive. We can begin to enter this world when we begin to trust and surrender. And whenever I do this talk, I always close with a story that to me perfectly describes trust and surrender. Um, so it's about a man who lived in a monastery in France. And to me, it's just a perfect example of trust and surrender. Dominique, a lean muscular, six feet, two inches, always wearing a navy blue beret, learned at age 54 that he was dying of inoperable cancer. With the community's permission, he moved to a poor neighborhood in Paris and took a job as night watchman at a factory. Returning home every morning at 8 a.m., he would go directly to a little park across the street from where he lived and sit down on a wooden bench. Hanging around the park were marginal people, drifters, winos, has-been, dirty old men who ogled the girls passing by. Dominique never criticized, scolded, or reprimanded them. He laughed, told stories, shared his candy, accepted them just as they were. From living so long out of the inner sanctuary, he gave off a peace, 
a serene sense of self-possession and a hospitality of heart that caused cynical young men and defeated old men to gravitate toward him like bacon toward eggs. His simple witness lay in just accepting others as they were without question and allowing them to make themselves at home in his heart. Dominique was the most non-judgmental person I've ever known. He loved with the heart of God. One day when the ragtag group of rejects asked him to talk about himself, Dominique just gave a thumbnail description of his life. Then he told them with quiet conviction that God loved them tenderly and stubbornly, that he loved rejects and outcasts just like them. His witness was credible because God was enfleshed on his bones. Later, one old timer said the dirty jokes, vulgar language and leering at girls just stopped. One morning, Dominique failed to appear on his park bench. The men grew concerned. A few hours later, he was found dead on the floor of his cold water apartment. He died in the obscurity of a Paris slum. Dominique never tried to impress anybody, never wondered if his life was useful or his witness meaningful. He never felt he had to do something great for God. He did keep a journal. It was found shortly after his death in the drawer of the nightstand by his bed. His last entry is one of the most astonishing things I've ever read. All that is not the love of God has no meaning for me. I can truthfully say that I have no interest in anything but the love of God. If God wants it to, my life will be useful through my word and witness. If God wants it to, my life will bear fruit through my prayers and sacrifices. But the usefulness of my life is his concern, not mine. It would be indecent of me to worry about that. He trusted, he surrendered, and he left all the results to God. I love that story. Um, and that is all I have. And with that, I will pass.